Hebrews 20.20, we see Jesus, increment 194, and we're dealing with part two of, at least beginning with part two of, is Hebrews an apocalypse? Not in terms of literary genre, but an apocalypse in terms of a disclosure or a vision of Jesus Christ in his universally saving significance. This, again, is a kind of a doctrine that is being currently birthed, and so it's a little rough cut. And I've apologized for that in the last increment, and we're going to continue on it. This really has to do with Hebrews in toto, or the totality of Hebrews, and with, its, with an anticipation of its distilled phase, the distillation phase in which we present Hebrews as a concentrated vision or a concentrated revelation of Jesus Christ. The question in Thomist method whether Hebrews, we could say, is an apocalypse, or is Hebrews an apocalypse? Question mark. We began this with part one in our last increment, increment 193, and asked a, a primary sequence or series of questions, or made rather a series of observations, 11 observations, primary series of observations. Now, with the question whether Hebrews is an apocalypse of the USSJC, still in mind, let's proceed now with a second series of preliminary observations. Now, I have to say that when I was first struck with the idea to address this question on January 4th in the morning, I was unaware of its importance, not only in general, but in a particular study, of, in this particular study of Hebrews, its importance in such a time as this, our own time, and in such a place. If Hebrews in its totality presents a view of Jesus in his universal saving significance, then this goes a long way to showing its significance on the level of our own time and to us and for us right now. And I hope this will unveil its great value to us. So this is a secondary or a second series of preliminary observations. First, the only document in the Bible that explicitly calls itself an apocalypse or the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, Revelation 1.1, is the book of Revelation. This book we call it a book because Revelation calls itself a book. For example, in Revelation 22, 19, calls itself this book. 
to biblio to biblio or biblio tuto to biblio tuto this book so revelation is a book calls itself a book and that book is radically centered in a lamb that was slaughtered from the foundation of the world. Please notice that. That gives the lamb's death already a universally, well, let's say a universal significance. We're talking about the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. We're not talking about a lamb slain during Israel's history on the Day of Atonement or the on any given Passover. We're talking about a, a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. This in Revelation 13.8. This phrase, from the foundation of the world, is also found in a passage in Hebrews that we're going to take a look at at the end of this increment. So I'm going to reiterate. First, in a second series of observations, the only document in the Bible that explicitly calls itself an apocalypse is the book of Revelation. And it's radically centered in a lamb that was slaughtered from the foundation of the world. Revelation 5, 5 and 6, 13, 8. Well, there are 28 references to the lamb, as we know from a previous study of Revelation. That the lamb is said to be slaughtered from the foundation of the world indicates that his self-sacrifice is both universal and diachronic in its saving effect and efficacy. Diachronic meaning over the course of all time, taking in history over the course of all time, peoples from the course of all time, diachronic and universal. So I'm going to say that again because that's a new one on me or a new one from me or a new one to me. The that the lamb is said to be slaughtered from the foundation of the world indicates that his self-sacrifice is both universal and diachronic in its saving effect and efficacy. John's apocalypse is intimately associated with John's gospel, which is also radically centered in the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1.29, also John 19.30-35 where it becomes starkly illustrated. In both cases the Lamb is related to the world. The world. Foundation of the world, the sin of the world. Both cases, John and Revelation, the Lamb of God is related to the world which he redeems by his blood. And this is also borne out in the general Johannine epistle, we call it Alpha John or 1 John, in which Jesus Christ is declared to be the propitiation or the expiation or the removal for the sins of the whole world. The removal of the sins of the whole world or the satisfaction of saving justice for the sins of the whole world. Second in our second series of preliminary observations, Romans. The epistle can also be considered an apocalypse of the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ, especially given that at its very heart is a revelation of God for us 
in Romans 8.31, and of the allusion to his son as the Lamb of God in 8.32. Though the word lamb is not specifically used there, lamb is definitely the allusion back to Genesis 22.8. The lamb not spared as Isaac was spared, but handed over in behalf of us all, Romans 8, 31 to 32. So at the heart and center, the dead or the living center of Romans is a slain lamb for us all. In addition to this is the climactic peak of Romans 11:32. We could also call Romans 9 through 11 a miniature apocalypse or an apocalypse within an apocalypse. And Romans 11.32 is the peak spire in that cathedral of Revelation in which Paul discloses God's purpose to show saving mercy to all. Third in our second series of preliminary observations under the question whether Hebrews is an apocalypse. Third. Indications that Paul's corpus, or his entire body of New Testament writings, is revealed to be a lamb-centered apocalypse of the saving significance of Jesus Christ are found, indications are found, for example, in a correlation of 1 Corinthians 5-7, which Paul says Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slaughtered, and the micro-apocalypse of 1 Corinthians 15, 24-28. I refer you to our Martin Luther King Day special under special messages. 1 Corinthians 15, 24-28, where that same slaughtered lamb of 1 Corinthians 5, 7, having reigned until all his enemies are under his feet, submits himself to God along with all of the redeemed creation so that God will be all in all. You'd think for a lamb, someone would have to bring their enemies, the lamb's enemies, under his feet. The lamb isn't going to do it. God the Father says, I will bring, all of your enemies will be brought under your feet. It's the Father who brings all the enemies under the Son's feet. The lamb waits. And to this, add to this, The pastoral epistle, so-called, or the three of them, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, the pastoral epistles which tend to sum up Paul's soteriology. One of the things those three epistles does is sum up Paul's soteriology, or theology of salvation. For example, in 1st Timothy 2, 1 to 6, in a kind of micro-apocalypse, God wills the salvation of all. The man Christ Jesus is the sole mediator, the only mediator between the one God and humanity itself, meaning all of humanity, having given himself as a ransom for all in 1 Timothy 2.6. Testimony that is relevant at all times. In other words, that message is relevant at all times, and that includes particularly our own time. On top of this, add the definition of, quote, the appearance of the grace of God. The grace of God has appeared, colon, salvation for all human beings, Titus 2.11. That may be a micro-apocalypse in itself, a micro-micro-apocalypse, Titus 2.11, and many other examples which shout a resounding yes 
to the question of all of Paul being an apocalypse of the universally saving significance of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and of the universally redemptive reconciling and rectifying impact of the death of the cross that he endured for us. At this point I feel the time constraint that the Hebrews author felt when he spoke about time will fail him to give further details of the Holy of Holies in Hebrews 9 or time would fail him to add to the list of heroic examples of faith. Time would fail me to deal in detail with Romans 5:18 to 19, Romans 11:25 to 26, 2 Corinthians 5:14 to 21, 1 Timothy 4:9 to 10, 2 Timothy 2:11 to 13, Ephesians 1:9 to 11, Colossians 1:20, etc., etc. But my purpose here is simply to present a few preliminaries to our proposed query. Can Hebrews be viewed as an apocalypse or a divine disclosure of the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ, or better said, of Jesus Christ, whom we see in universally saving significance? Did God, the divine author with an omniscient horizon, intend this for an audience nearly 2,000 years out from the initial writing. Fourth, in a second series of preliminary observations, let's go to Hebrews itself. Our key verse, I'd call it that at least for now, our key verse alone has the characteristics of a micro-apocalypse. Again, the word micro-apocalypse, if you don't know or haven't become aware, is something that I introduced in our Martin Luther King Day special, which will be un found under special messages. I dealt with it fairly extensively on what a micro-apocalypse is. It's a term coined by Sergius Bulgakov in his book, oddly titled, The Lamb of God. So fourth observation our key verse of Hebrews has the characteristics of a micro-apocalypse. Note it. But we see Jesus, who was made inferior to the angels for a little while, so that by the grace of God, or our alternate translation, far from God, he would taste death for everyone, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Dying, you shall surely die, says Genesis 2.17. God said to the first Adam, dying, you shall surely die. But may I suggest that that dying that he threatened the first Adam with was endured by the second Adam. That makes the whole Bible an apocalypse of the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ. I'm just dropping that bomb and letting it blow up at ground zero, we have to develop that over the course of, well, whatever years God gives us. That which was spoken to the first Adam was experienced by the last Adam. He died for the first Adam and for all who were in the first Adam and represented by him. For when one Christ Jesus died, he died for all 
and in him all will be made alive. As we continue our study of Hebrews line by line and verse by verse, even word by word, as has been our habit up to now, we must also consider this big picture. And I consider it my duty to keep this extensive horizon before us, knowing that without a vision of the redemptive revelation of God in Christ, even the people of God perish. That is, they get stuck in the evil age in a hopeless condition. Fifth observation of a second series of preliminary observations under the question, is Hebrews an apocalypse? Fifth, though Jesus is not referred to specifically as God's lamb, if we go to Hebrews 9.14, we are confronted with his identity as such even though the word lamb is not used for Christ. Nevertheless, the blood of Christ is an obvious allusion to God's lamb. Moreover, the prime requisite of the sacrificial lamb, the prime requirement for him, is used to describe him, namely, amomas, A-M, omega-O, m Omicron O-S. Amomas means unblemished. So at the heart of Hebrews, as at the heart of Romans, there's an allusion to a lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. And Christ's blood, whenever blood is associated with Christ, it is related to the paschal lamb and the slaughter of a lamb. And so here in Hebrews 9.14... And I'm reiterating a little bit. We're confronted with Jesus' identity as the Lamb of God, even though the word lamb is not used. Nevertheless, the blood of Christ is used, and it's an obvious allusion to God's lamb. Furthermore, the prime requirement of the sacrificial lamb is used to describe him, namely, amomas, or amomas, unblemished. Hebrews 9.14, in fact, occupies a similar center as Romans 8.32, where we are also confronted with the strong allusion to the world-saving Lamb of God. As I'm speaking now, I'm beginning to see, even now, flash before the eyes of my heart, a remarkable correlation and association of revelation with Hebrews. It's just now making an appearance, and it's almost a little bit disconcerting, but we'll continue. Hebrews 9.14, a verse worth memorizing in any translation, any good translation. It reads like this in my translation. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself unblemished to God? There it's actually saying he's the lamb. How much more will the blood of Christ who offered him through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, that is the Father, purify our conscience from dead works so that we can serve the living God. Now a thesis is begged here. T-H-E-S-I-S. -E a thesis is begged here. And so I'm going to give you one. And it's more than one sentence. 
And in fact, we'll call this the sixth observation, but it's also a thesis and should be in bold print when you see it in print. At the center of history is the great crisis of the cross. The cross, or perhaps better, Jesus Christ and him crucified as the Lamb of God, is the son of history. And I say son, S-U-N. The cross, Christ crucified, is the son, S-U-N, of history. And the rest of history, before and after, beneath and above, is its corona, is merely the corona of the sun. Eventually, therefore, all the evils of the human race will be converted into a supreme good by the law of the cross. I say eventually. Some of that, even though that happened at the cross, it will be manifested at the so-called last judgment, which is simply the reiteration, universally revealed reiteration of the cross of Christ and the saving justice of God that occurred there. So I want to repeat that thesis again. At the center of history is the great crisis of the cross. The cross, or perhaps better, Jesus Christ and him crucified, is the son of history. And all the rest of history, before and after, beneath and above it, is its corona. Eventually, all the evils of the human race will be converted into a supreme good by the law of the cross. Seventh, in a second series of preliminary principles, in answer to the question whether Hebrews is an apocalypse, we've seen that 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 28, qualifies as what Sergius Bulgakov called a micro-apocalypse. Now, I think it would be both profitable and fun to look for other micro-apocalypses in the scripture. If by apocalypse we mean a divine disclosure of Jesus Christ in his universally saving significance. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 21 might qualify as a micro-apocalypse. 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 6 may also qualify as such. I'm tempted to do special messages on both of these. Titus 3, 4 to 7 could meet the requirements of a micro-apocalypse. Revelation or Romans, rather, 11, 25 to 36 can be treated as such. As Romans 9 through 11 itself, the whole three chapters could also fill the requirements of an apocalypse. Fanning any one of these concentrated passages out could certainly create an apocalypse and present a vision to people that would keep them from perishing in hopelessness. Eighth, in a second series of preliminary observations under our question, for our edification, we should consider, and you can go here, Hebrews 9.24, we should consider Hebrews 9.24 through 28 as a micro-apocalypse within Hebrews. I'm going to suggest this once again. For a wider treatment of the term micro-apocalypse, I refer you to our Martin Luther King Day special message of 116.22. And it's found under special messages at tetelestai or tetelestai.org. So let's turn to Hebrews 9. And I'm t this is a very superficial 
treatment of this passage. With God's permission, we may flesh out this micro-apocalypse of the three appearances. I call it the apocalypse of the three appearances someday, for we have only presented its blurred outline in this that's to come here. But I want you to consider it, and it's my translation with a few comments, but I think you may get the idea, and if all you do is get the inkling or the idea that this could be considered a micro-apocalypse, like 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 28, then I will have succeeded in what I really set out to do today. Hebrews 9, 24. For the Messiah did not enter a holy place made by human hands. Already, what's required to understand this is a superconsciousness called epignosis, something that the Holy Spirit grants to us by a gift of his grace, the conceiving of a holy place not made by human hands. For the Messiah did not enter a holy place made by human hands. Speaking of the earthly tent and tabernacle and its arrangement in two rooms, the holy place and the holiest of all. He did not enter a holy place made by human hands as the Levitical priest did, a mere counterpart of the authentic one, but into heaven itself now to appear. That's very interesting, at least if we're looking for apocalyptic terms, very interesting. Now to appear, and the word for appear is, I'm just going to give the English transliteration for time constraint, because of time constraint, emphanizo, emphanizo, you'll see it in print in the Greek form also. And that's a synonym for apocalypto, incidentally, which is where we get the word apocalypse. Emphanizo, synonym for apocalypto or apocalypse. So the Messiah did not enter into a holy place made by human hands, a mere counterpart of the authentic one, but into heaven itself now to appear in person before God in our behalf and for our benefit. Nor was it to offer himself many times, says verse 25. Please notice this. Nor was it to offer himself many times as the Levitical archpriest who goes into the sanctuary annually with the blood of others. We're still in a comparison that began way back in Hebrews 7, which we're going to continue in, of course, verse by verse, of the Levitical priesthood or the priesthood after the order of Aaron in contrast with the priesthood after the order of or as prefigured in Melchizedek. Nor then does it say in verse 25, was it when he went in there to offer him after having offered himself with, the, with his own blood, as it were, nor was it to offer himself many times as the Levitical archpriest goes into the sanctuary annually with the blood of others. The, the archpriest, once a year, and Yom Kippur takes the blood of others with him into a man-made tent, in a man-made holy of holies. Jesus wasn't like that. He didn't do it annually. He did it once and for all, and that's what verse 26 says, and that itself is an apocalypse 
or stunning revelation. Verse 26, for in that case, that is, if he was like those who offered the blood of others annually, in that case, he would have had to suffer many times, please note this phrase, from the foundation of the world. Apokataboles kasmu, from the foundation of the world, exactly the phrase we find in Revelation 13.8. So if you compile these two or conflate these two, we begin to see a parallel of Revelation with Hebrews where the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world or from the foundation of the world or from the creation of the universe, meaning that there was only one and once and for all offering that covered the redemption of the whole universe and of all of humanity over the course of all times, never to be repeated. Again, all I can do is suggest, all I can do is imply, all I can do is infer here, and that's all I'm doing in this this particular, I call it, micro-apocalypse of the three appearings of Christ. But as it is, the word N-U-N is used here, noon, but as it is, people love to say it is what it is, which is a stunningly oversimplified and almost absurd statement of the obvious. They should all, when we say that statement, we should be wearing the Captain Obvious uniform. But here it says, but as it is, he has appeared. Now again, we have another synonym for apocalypto here. And it is phanerao, P-H-A-N-E-R, omicron O, omega O, omicron omega, phanerao, synonym of apocalypto. I use the Greek here. Greek letters. So, in 926b, but as it is, as things really are, he has appeared once and for all. That's another key word, hapax, H-A-P-A-X, along with ephapax, E-P-H-A-P-A-X, ephapax, once and for all, without need of repetition. So in verse 26, for in that case, he would have had to suffer many times from the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once and for all at the juncture of the ages, and I'll explain once again what I mean by that down the road. It doesn't simply say the end of the ages, although that is denoted or that is connoted in this, but... It's actually at the juncture of the ages. The cross occurred at the juncture of the ages, at the joining of the ages. And as I said before, the cross, or Christ and him crucified, is the sun of history, S-U-N. And all the rest of history, beneath, above, to the left and the right of it, are merely its corona. And so... As it is, he has appeared once and for all at the juncture of the ages for the removal of sin. Not for the removal of the sins of Israel for another year, as happened in Yom Kippur in a merely typical sense with the blood of others and by a priest that goes into a man-made tent. No, 
This one appeared once at the juncture of the ages of history to put away sin itself by what? By the sacrifice of himself, not the sacrifice of another. In this case, the priest and the lamb are one. The offerer and the offering are one. And once and for all means once without repetition and once for all of humanity for all time. That's why I use the word diachronic for all time, universal for all humanity, in fact, for all creation. You can see how this begs to be fleshed out, this whole passage, but we're just giving a very blurred outline at first. Because good teaching proceeds, and I agree with Thomas Aquinas on this, from obscurity to clarity. We get to clarity, we'll be in the distillation phase of Hebrews and we will have kind of, well, we've done our job then. And just, verse 27, one of the most misunderstood verses in scripture, used by Hellas to prove their doctrine of hell, only revealing their ignorance, however, and lack of superconsciousness brought about by the Spirit of grace. Verse 27, and just as it is for human beings to die just once, hapax again. And after that, the judgment, and that means, and I'll suggest this now and fan it out later, after that, the judgment unto justification So the Christ, verse 28, having offered himself once. You see, this once, verse 27, he's trying to emphasize the fact that how many times do you die? Once. It's given to men to die once. That's pretty emphatic. Once. You die once. And after that, the judgment unto justification. I'll explain that down the road. So Christ, having offered himself once, he's the one who died. He died once and once and for all. Once, hapax. Three times the word hapax, H-A-P-A-X, is used in this little micro-apocalypse. So the Christ, having offered himself once to assume the sins of many, that is to bear them, to carry them, to assume their consequence, to assume their guilt, to assume their penalty. The sins of many. And that means in his once and for all death, he bore the sins of many. And we all know that this is a reference to Isaiah 53, 11 and Paul interpreted the many there to be all in Romans 5.18. We know that. So again, so the Christ, having offered himself once to assume the sins of many, so he will appear a second time. Just like the priest appeared once before the people with the blood of others, went in with the blood of others, he didn't die in the Holy of Holies. He came back out again 
which revealed that the sacrifice was acceptable by God and he came back out to appear to the people again. This time they probably clapped and applauded and were happier than the Steelers were last night to clap for Ben. They were happier. Because why? Because the sacrifice of others offered by the Levitical archpriest was acceptable for another year on the Day of Atonement. How much more when Jesus appears the second time? Here's the three appearances. He appears once at the juncture of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He appears in a what we might call a middle appearing before God representing us all. And then he appears a second time. That's the parousia or the second advent as it's called or the second coming. Call it what you will. Bringing salvation. He doesn't rapture out a few lottery, lucky lottery winners and then pound the earth with 100-pound hailstones. No, he comes a second time he appears, bringing salvation to those that are waiting for him. Who's waiting for him? People that aren't even aware of waiting for him. The creation is waiting for him. You don't ask a tree or a dog or an elk, are you waiting for your savior? But they are waiting for their liberator. He comes and redeems and deliberates all creation that Paul portrays as a waiting creation. Not only are they waiting, but unbelievers are waiting. They don't know they're waiting for the deliverance that comes through Jesus Christ, but they are. And believers are consciously waiting for him. And so, verse 28, so the Christ, having offered himself once, that's in the first appearing, to assume the sins of many, so he will appear a second time without having to deal with sin. Note my translation there. Without having to deal with sin. Why? Because he put it away. You think he's going to deal with your sins at the judgment seat? No way. He dealt with sin on the cross. He comes with salvation or for salvation. Salvation. Soteria. Salvation here has its counterpart in judgment in 927. So the judgment in 927 correlates with the salvation in 928 because we're talking about the saving justice of God. So salvation here has its counterpart in judgment in 927 as Jesus once and for all death has its counterpart in the once-only death appointed for every human being. He's simply emphasizing the once-and-for-allness of the death of Jesus Christ, which was the singular death, which was the bearing of the wages of sin for all of humanity over the course of all time. Remember, dying you will die, God said to the first Adam. And the one who died in that extraordinary way was not the first Adam, but the second Adam. And when one died, all died. So that all will be made alive in him. Verse 28, so the Christ having offered himself once to assume the sins of many, many meaning all. So he will appear a second time without having to deal with sin with salvation for those who are waiting for him. 
Now, if you compare those who are waiting for him with Romans 8, 19 to 23, you know that all creation is waiting for him over the course of all time. And if you bring in 1 Peter 3, 18 to 19 and 4, 4 to 6, you're also seeing that those who are waiting for him are those who are unbelieving dead. The unbelieving dead are included, in other words, included in the salvation that he brings. <clears throat> so, again, I'll say, with God's permission, we may flesh out this micro-apocalypse of the three appearings someday. Because we've only presented it in a blurred outline so far. So this is an unexpected turn, these past two messages, the past two increments, 193 and 194, asking the question whether Hebrews is an apocalypse. And this takes on the method that we used in Revelation. Before getting to the distillation phase, we anticipate it. And we express the sense of Hebrews in toto. Because I always want to keep before you the big picture so that you don't get discouraged and lost in the line upon line, word upon word, minute exegesis. So that's what we're doing. So Father, we thank you for this opportunity. We pray that you will open the eyes of our heart and grant us the super consciousness that's needed to perceive transcendent realities, mainly the transcendent reality that is our Lord Jesus Christ in his universally saving significance and the hope that it engenders and brings and the hope that it spreads through those who have that confident hope. And we thank you for this in Christ's name. Amen.